Father, thank you, Lord, again for the chance to pray for one another. Father, you know all things before we even choose to raise them. And yet, in the mystery of prayer, Father, you've given us the opportunity to work one for another. That somehow, Father, in your providence, you have seen fit to increase the blessing for one of us based on the decision of another to intercede through prayer. How that is and how it can be, we don't understand, but we know the promises of it and we we know the God behind the promise. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us that privilege. And tonight for so many who came with needs, and that was matched by an equal number who gave their best effort to intercede, Father. I thank the Spirit for the work that he did in both the one who would reveal the need and the one that would meet it. And I ask, Father, that the answers to these prayers would reaffirm for us the the importance of coming before you with these petitions. And Lord, as you move us from petition and prayer to study and to the power of the word to change us, I recognize again the mysteries of what you do, Father, in your sovereign will. Through the spoken word, through the written word, we can know things that cannot be known any other way. We can be changed in ways that nothing else can change us. And we thank you, Father, for that mystery as well. Let us make the most of what you've made available in these things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, the restoration of Israel is in its final phase. God has raised a godly leader to take Israel from the classroom to the field. And the plan is for Nehemiah to lead the people into rebuilding the walls and the gates of their precious city, as we learned last week. But the spiritual purpose for Nehemiah to be there leading them goes far beyond brick and masonry. The purpose is to build up a people who will follow the Lord truly. Last week we saw Nehemiah leaving Persia after that brave request of the king to let him go for the permission to go. And the king permitted his departure and we're told he did so because the hand of the Lord was on Nehemiah. So he left Persia and as we'll learn later, he brings about 42,000 more Jews with him in this third wave leaving for the land. And we ended last week at the end of chapter 2 as Nehemiah conducted his inspection of the gates and as he rallies the people to build the wall. We're going to take a second look at that passage at the end of chapter 2, even as we go further today. So start again in chapter 2 with me, verses 9 through 16. I'll begin reading there. Nehemiah 2, 9. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal in which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley of the gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. And then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials or the rest who did the work. So our story of Nehemiah has moved into a new section one that revolves around the completion of the work of building the wall. We're going to see Nehemiah face a variety of challenges as he goes through this process. 
He's going to have to solve some problems. He is going to have enemies that come to contend with him and against the nation of Israel. And if that weren't bad enough, he has to lead Jews. His greatest task among all of these, though, is going to be moving the people of God together as one group without having them tear each other apart in the process. Now, the point of this section of the building of the wall, the organizing of it and all the rest isn't to learn the intricacies of construction or or even really to study leadership as it's often portrayed. Instead, I think this is a study of the way God uses the accomplishment of a task as an opportunity to build up his people. He does the work of building up his people through the leadership of godly men like Nehemiah, men who recognize that the physical work is actually secondary to the spiritual work. It's a laboratory setting in which sanctification can take place. Notice in verses 9 through 10, as we read, we already see the opportunity beginning early here. Although Nehemiah has traveled, we're told, with letters of passage from the king, there are these other province officials that aren't happy to hear about Israel being rebuilt again. The two men that are mentioned here are officials from Samaria on the one hand and Ammon on the other. And these are neighboring territories. They're neighboring provinces of Judah. And as you see them contending with Nehemiah over the prospect that Israel is going to receive help, you're not looking at anything new. Anytime God's people are receiving grace from the Lord, the enemy and his followers are going to be quick to notice that and to protest it and to scheme against it. That's been the way since Abel and Cain. A godly leader moving to do the Lord's will had better have a sense of the enemy's methods so that he can work his way around them and avoid falling for them. As the Bible says, innocent as doves, but crafty as a serpent. He has to have a thick skin, too, because the world is not shy in sharing its opinion. The world is not hesitant to get in the way. Anytime the Lord is at work, you can expect the enemy to respond. So had these officials had their way, Israel would never have been rebuilt. That much is obvious. And we haven't heard the last of these two adversaries. They're going to come up at various times in the story. Looking at Nehemiah's arrival, he waits three days, and his decision to wait three days before he ever gets started in this task has always intrigued students of this book. Was there something specific he was waiting for? Was it to avoid tipping his hand concerning his purposes? Was it maybe because of the encounters with Sambalat and Tobiah that's left him concerned that his enemies are watching? He needs to be careful. He has to disguise himself and his purposes. Maybe he wasn't sure where to start. Maybe he needed time to think about his plan and, and all the rest. Perhaps all of those reasons are true, but when the time comes to set out, he goes out at night. He travels, we're told, first outside the city by way of the valley gate, and you can see that on your handout. That's heading south. He then moves eastward around the southern end of the city and then north up the east wall. The southern portion is the part that has a wall because he's inspecting it, and that makes sense because... Historically, the attacks that Jerusalem has suffered in its history always come from the north. And the ones that they suffered under Nebuchadnezzar were three from the north. So the northern wall is largely gone. And the southern wall is in disrepair, but still present to a degree. So he's inspecting what there is of a wall, looking primarily at the southern part of the city. Eventually, we're told he gets to a point where he can't travel any further, so he returns by the way he came to the valley gate. So once again, why did he go out at night? Did he want to go without the opinions of others getting in the way of his own opinion? Well, perhaps, but he doesn't seem like a man who's terribly worried about others' opinions. Was he trying to conceal his plan from the enemy? Well, that doesn't seem a very good reason since he announces his plan publicly the very next morning anyway. 
In verse 16, Nehemiah does mention, though, that no official in Israel knew where he went or what he was planning to do. So putting all this together, it would seem that he was concealing his purpose primarily from the Jews, not necessarily from his enemies. The only logical answer is, in doing so, Nehemiah wanted to control the message. He wanted to make the most of his one chance to have a first impression. If he had paraded around the city wall in the daylight and done it with an entourage, for example, the word would have gotten out far faster than he could have controlled it. That public display would have given rise to any number of assumptions among the people of God in Israel. The gossip would have started. Thoughts of what his plans were, what his purposes were. They might have been saying, well, he must have been sent by the king to check on our progress. What is he going to say when he sees we haven't done very much? They're going to perhaps conclude he's here to make us slaves to rebuild the wall for the king. Or he's going to rebuild the wall and then kick us out. He faced the possibility of losing the PR battle before he could even make his case to the people. Instead, he wants to assess the situation in private, develop a plan, and then make his pitch without competition. Look what he does in verse 17 and 18, which we read again last week. He says, then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. And then they said, well, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. So Nehemiah knew that he would have to preach the call of God to the people of God without voices of dissent competing for the hearts and the minds of the people. The spoken word, in other words, is the powerful tool that God has historically used and still uses today to stir his people into action one way or another. Throughout the ages, the Lord has done this. God has determined by the mystery of preaching to speak to his people through the mouths of men who are called to preach. And there is simply no substitute for the call of the spoken word. The word made flesh by the voice of men echoing the words of God. Nehemiah's address to the people of Israel is a spoken call, a spoken call to action and obedience. And it must be that way. Nehemiah does not send his appeal through messengers or by letter. He assembles the people. He delivers his call with God at the center of his argument. That technique is as ancient as the creation. And yet even now in our modern society, it remains God's primary method to reach, exhort, and inspire his people to know and to follow him. It's no coincidence that even in the age of the Internet, smartphones and multimedia and all the rest, that people still find pulpit preaching compelling, essential, and irreplaceable. Those modern inventions have only served to make preaching more accessible and more popular as a result. You can read sermons, you can watch dramas, and you can browse websites, you can do all of those things, but none of those things stir us the same way as sitting in the presence of someone who can speak powerfully in a well-delivered way concerning the Word of God. There's just no substitute for it, nor has there ever been. That's why in John's Gospel, it starts with the Word, and in every chapter as you proceed through, the theme of John's Gospel is the Word. When men wanted signs, it was the Word that changed hearts. When men wanted to know who Jesus was, it was the word that communicated it, the word. And that's the way the Lord intends. Godly leaders in the church, men like Nehemiah, will come in different shapes and different sizes. They'll have different personalities. They'll have a variety of strengths and gifts and the like. But the one universal ingredient that 
must be present in every godly leader is a gift of exhortation combined with a grasp of God's word. We can be leaders without those things, but we cannot be the leader that calls the people of God into the work of God without that gift. You can call it teaching, you can call it preaching, you can call it exhortation, but the ability to communicate through the spoken word is essential to leading God's people. And when the time comes to exhort God's people, the enemy is going to be close behind trying to disrupt and interrupt that preaching, hoping to block it, trying to neutralize its effects. And so what Nehemiah has done through this simple process is stack the deck in his favor, determining both the time and the manner in which he would reveal his plan to the people so that as they hear it, they're stirred to respond in the right way so that the message doesn't get ahead of the messenger. The message has its own power. We don't impart power to the message, but God in his wisdom has seen fit to make the delivery of it as powerful and as much a part of the process as the very substance of it. And sure enough, the enemy responds in this story as soon as Nehemiah tips his hand. Look in verse 19 and 20. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. So the two officials who've been disturbed by what they had heard in the beginning are back again. Clearly, the word is spread fast, indicating that it would seem not everybody in the city is a friend of Jerusalem. Somebody heard this message and tattled and told these men. And as they learn of the plan, it says they go down to the city to see what they can do to put a stop to it. And they have seen the king's letter before. That's how Nehemiah traveled in in the first place. So they can't oppose Nehemiah directly. He comes under the authority of the king's letter. So what do they do instead? The very next best thing. They look to undermine him by going after the people. They look to undermine him in the eyes of the people. Look in verse 19. These three men are said to mock and despise us. They aren't speaking to Nehemiah. They're directly talking to the people of Israel. They direct their derision against the people. What they're hoping to do, of course, is discourage them, frighten them, anything they can in order to get them to disregard Nehemiah's call. The enemy rarely makes a frontal assault against the work of God. He's too crafty for that and he prefers to attack at the weak spot. Nehemiah wasn't going to be swayed by God's enemies. The people of God, though, are fragile and the people in the city are vulnerable, which is why Nehemiah has so carefully crafted this moment in the first place to have the maximum possible impact to gain their approval and strengthen their resolve. And so these men come along, as the enemy will do, immediately in that moment or soon thereafter, and tries to place doubt in the people's mind. This is such a common pattern. Anyone who's been a Christian longer than a day knows this pattern. A call of God, a word from God, the instructions of Scripture met in your heart with a conviction and a desire to obey and a a commitment of sorts. And not soon thereafter, doubt, temptation, friction, something that causes you to wonder, is this the right course or to test your resolve? It's such a natural pattern. Once again, God's leadership has a role to play in that process. God's leader, in in this case, Nehemiah, he steps up. And he defends and he encourages God's people in the face of that attack. Nehemiah bravely stands up to these men and he states one of the more memorable one-liners of the Bible, in my opinion. And and actually, there's two one-liners that Nehemiah is famous for. This is one of them. He tells them three important things. He says, first, the success of the people doesn't depend on their skill. 
It doesn't depend on their bravery. It doesn't depend on their wealth. It doesn't even depend on the fact that they have the king's permission. They may have skill. They may feel brave. They may have some wealth and they certainly have permission. But their success won't come from these things. It's going to come from the Lord alone. Why is that important? Because it means that nothing these men can say concerning why Israel isn't fit to do the job is relevant. They weren't fit before they started. They're not going to be fit at any point. Therefore, Nehemiah says, secondly, the people will persevere in building the walls. Because if the Lord is for us, who can be against us? God wants us to do it, so really nothing you say matters. We'll be able to if God wants it. Knowing the Lord will bring success doesn't mean, though, that our work won't have difficulties. It doesn't mean we aren't going to have to contend with trial along the way. That's not the point. The fact that the Lord is with us doesn't make life a breeze, and we know that already. It means we have every reason to persevere despite those things. It means those things are not evidence that we will fail. And that's Nehemiah's conclusion as well. And then lastly, Nehemiah informs the men they have no portion, no right, no memorial in Jerusalem. The word portion here means to having a tribal history in the land. Or another way to say it is no portion of the land belonged to their ancestors. And therefore, in the second case, they have no right. They have no right to claim any of the land of Israel or how it should be used. They have no standing concerning this decision in the way that this wall will be built. And finally, he says they have no memorial, which means there will be no record of these men in the future Jerusalem. Simply said, they have no past, they have no present, they have no future in this matter. So butt out. So at that point, the building begins. I like this moment in the story of Nehemiah for what it says about the importance of leadership in our own personal walk. Our leadership exists to exhort and to guide and to encourage and to walk us through the process where trial starts to get us off the path. Christianity is not a solo sport. It's a team sport. If we aren't looking to our leadership throughout, we're putting an important resource on the sidelines when we need it in the fight that we have with With the world, with our own flesh, with the enemy and with the world. So Nehemiah does that. He steps in defending the people, strengthening them in the face of the attack. And so the building begins. And chapter three is in its entirety the detail of who did what to accomplish the building of the wall. You have a map, as I said, it'll help you follow some of the places that are about to be mentioned in this chapter. We're going to read the entire chapter at once because we want to see the entirety of the process. And it it is just a listing of names and places that were being built. Verses 1 all the way through 32. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the tower of the hundred and the tower of Hananel. Next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Now the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, made repairs. And next to him, Meshalam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Bana, also made repairs. Moreover, next to him, the Tekaites made the repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Joiada, the son of Pasiah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodeiah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beam and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranonthite. The men of Gibeon and the Mitzpah also made repairs for the official seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of 
Harhiah of the goldsmiths made repairs. And next to them, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Harumanth, made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashab, Neiah, made repairs. Malachajah, the son of Harim, and Hasub, the son of Pahathmoab, repaired another section and the tower of furnaces. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zanoa repaired the valley gate. They built it and hung its doors and its bolts and its bars and a thousand cubits of the wall to the refuse gate. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, the official of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Shalom, the son of Kolhose, the official of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it and covered it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars and the wall of the pool of Shelah at the king's garden as far as the steps that descend from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, the official of half the district of Beth Zur, made repairs as far as the point opposite the tombs of David and as far as the artificial pool and the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites carried out repairs under Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, the official of half the district of Keilah, carried out repairs for his district. After him, their brothers carried out repairs under Baviah, the son of Henadad, official of the other half of the district of Keilah. Next to him, Azir, the son of Yeshua, the official of Mitzpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent of the armory at the angle. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabiah, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the doorway of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Meremoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired another section from the doorway of Eliashib's house, even as far as the end of his house. After him, the priests, the men of the valley, carried out repairs. After them, Benjamin and Hasub carried out repairs in front of their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maasiah, the son of Ananiah, carried out repairs beside his house. After him, Benui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah as far as the angle and as far as the corner. Palal, the son of Uzziah, made repairs in front of the angle and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king, which is by the court of the guard. After him, Pedadiah, the son of Perosh, made repairs. The temple servants living in Ophel made repairs as far as the front of the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower. And them, after them, the Tekoites repaired another section in front of the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests carry out repairs each in front of his house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emir, carried out repairs in front of his house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, carried out repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshalam, the son of Berechiah, carried out repairs in front of his own quarters. And after him, Malkajah, one of the goldsmiths, carried out repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants in front of the inspection gate and as far as the upper room of the corner. Between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants carried out repairs. If you were following as best you could, you notice that Nehemiah was just moving in a counterclockwise circle around the city wall. And this chapter provides the full detail, some might say the tedious detail, of the list of workers, of their assignments, and as they carried out their assignments around the building of the wall. 
There's clearly fewer people working here than the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Not everyone is mentioned, though we can assume that the names represented families, not just single individuals. But even then, it's unlikely that 100,000 people were all working simultaneously, though we might assume a huge number of them were just to get the work done in the time that we know it took. The list begins with Elisha, the grandson of Yeshua and his brothers building the sheep gate. We're told they fill in the wall between the two towers on the top of your drawing that mark the center stronghold on the northern wall. That family had the help of at least two other families. So what we're saying here is a family or a clan represents a large group of people. So really, for every name, imagine a large group. Then as we scan down that chapter I read, you find the same thing happening all around the city wall, right? Another clan at the fish gate on the northern wall, another clan on the old gate at the extreme northwest corner, then the valley gate on the west side, the refuse gate, which is the dung gate, uh, the perfume guy should have been at the dung gate. Then you go up the eastern, the eastern side is the fountain gate repaired. And you notice there's another man named Nehemiah there, but it's clearly not the same one. And then down on down the chapter, you see different families doing different parts along the wall. You even see Levites and priests working on this. And so by the time you get to the end of the chapter, we've come back to the top. We're back at the sheep gate. We've encircled the entire city with workers. What's most interesting about this chapter is the diversity of the people who are engaged in the work. It didn't matter if you were a district official, if you were a priest, if you were a laborer, if you were a woman. There's no distinction in the culture for who was working. It seems that everyone lent a hand, or at least every segment of society was represented in the work. Literally, there's no segment who isn't seen here working on the wall. Merchants, the wealthy, the poor, etc. It would mean they put aside every other daily duty, every other pursuit, in order to take up this work. Their regular labors have taken a back seat to the pursuit of the call of God. Crops aren't being planted or harvested during this time, and you'll see that as a matter of fact later. So the expectation is that the work that the Lord has given Israel supersedes any personal interest, any personal work that might have otherwise filled their time. Isn't it remarkable that Nehemiah was able to engage so many families in such a large project through the simple call to get started on the work when they otherwise sat in that city for decades, actually centuries, looking at those fallen walls. I admire him because I have trouble getting my entire family outside to do yard work on a Saturday. That's not true. They have trouble getting me up. But he had thousands of families working together all at once around the wall. Every member of the nation had to take a part in this work. The walls lay ruined for decades while they watched it. But one man with one call from God makes them of one mind to get that work done. For any inspiring leader, here is the secret to sanctifying God's people. Let them do the work of ministry. Paul says that the path to Christ-like living is service. And that service is encouraged and enabled through the preparation of godly leaders. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, speaking to the church, Paul says, And the Lord gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Those aren't spiritual gifts. Those are roles. Many of them depend on certain gifts, but not exclusively. You can be an evangelist without the gift of evangelism. You can be a teacher without the gift of teaching. You can be a pastor without a gift that relates to pastoring. So these aren't gifts of the spirit. These are roles. The context here is of what God does through people to serve us. And he says he puts in the church these roles, these leadership positions. And then it says in verse 12, 
for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And then in verse 13, he says, to what outcome? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. There's your recipe. These various leadership roles in the church are given to the body to ensure that the body is equipped so that we would do service. We're equipped through teaching, through inspiration, through exhortation, through leading of one form or another. But that equipping is intended to get us to serve in ministry, to do work. And in the context of Nehemiah, the work had a very simple labor to it. It was building a wall. But that's the least of it. That's the laboratory environment in which the sanctification process can happen. Paul says that the ministry is service to the body of Christ. So if our time spent in Bible study or in church or in any context in which we're being built up, if it doesn't ultimately lead us to serve in some capacity, then that equipping has been for nothing. And then Paul says, as I mentioned in verse 13, the work of service is the means by which we attain to the unity of faith, to the knowledge of the Son, to the maturity of a Christian in the likeness of Christ. You cannot sanctify without service. You can learn a lot and be convicted a lot, but you will not become Christ-like until you're serving, for he was a servant. So to put it simply, we are sanctified through service. And when the nation of Israel responded to Nehemiah's call to serve, they experienced a measure of sanctification in their sacrificial service to God. Now, I'm not saying that service apart from godliness in general or service apart from the knowledge of Scripture or service apart from the other disciplines of the faith can all by itself produce a sanctified Christian. But I'm saying that it is an essential ingredient to that recipe. It's not sufficient, but it's necessary. Nehemiah couldn't build the wall by himself in his case, so he had no choice but to go out and enlist the help of the people. But in our day, pastors and leaders have a choice in many cases for how they will get the work done. They can look to the people to serve in the church or they can look elsewhere. We can use the church funds to hire people to perform many of the duties in the church rather than exhorting the people to do the work themselves. When we do this, we outsource sanctification. We go against the principle of Ephesians 4. We have to be willing to allow a call of God to go unmet, if necessary, so that the pressure builds for the members of the body to step up and meet that need. The carpets have to go unvacuumed. The walls have to go unpainted. The trash has to go unthrown out so that there is an impetus for someone to finally address the need and step into a role of service and gain the sanctification that the role of service intends. Remember, the body of Christ's goal is not to have a clean church, but a clean heart. Getting the clean heart comes from getting a clean church. But if we outsource the cleaning of the church, who's going to get the sanctification that comes naturally from that? We'll feel better that our church looks clean, but we won't have actually changed. It's a laboratory environment. The work of serving the body of Christ is the laboratory in which we become like Christ. Wouldn't have been the best outcome here if Nehemiah had said, I'm going to take all the wealth that the king has given me and we will hire Phoenicians to come down and build our wall for us. We have to be willing to let the call go unmet. In Jerusalem, the walls sat in ruins for decades, unmet needs, so that when the call of God came, there was a conviction in the heart that said, you know, he's right. We need to do something about this. And it wasn't the best thing for Israel that God would leave those walls down for so long, except that it was better than the alternative which was to forego the sanctification that building them by their own hands would have provided. In the day they finally heard the call, they respond in unison, and as a result, they're going to receive a great spiritual blessing 
for having stepped up to answer that call. Because not only will the walls get built, not only will the work itself be done, but the people will be edified through the process of doing it. They get two benefits rather than just the walls being built. That's the true mission of any godly leader, to build up the people. It's not the work that matters, it's the people. The work is simply the means to another end. Since the work has begun in such a dramatic way in this story, you can expect that the enemy is going to try to respond in an equally forceful way himself to step up the challenge. Because once these walls are complete, the city will be in a position to defend itself from its attackers. And at that point, the respect of the city and of the standing of Jerusalem among its enemies will have been heightened. The world could no longer take advantage of Israel once it had a wall. So the prospect of the walls going back up is greatly going to disturb anyone who hates Israel. And so the protagonists that we've seen already return now in chapter 4, they come back to mock the workers and to test their resolve. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now it came about that when Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near, and he said, Well, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break the stone wall down. It's regular Johnny Carson going right there. there? (laughs) Once again, Sambalat and Tobiah try their best to discourage the people by ridiculing them as they go about their work. We're told, and this doesn't come across as well in the way it's translated for us, He's speaking, we're told, in the presence of other influential men from the surrounding area of Samaria. The Hebrew word, though, for wealthy is also the word for army. And I think that's probably the better translation in this case, because it fits better with their mocking. Sambalat, here's the scene. Sambalat's come down from Samaria, and he's brought his clan and an army to intimidate the people as they build. And then as they're building, he stands with this army right outside their construction project, watching the walls go up. And you can imagine the scene, him standing there, the army arrayed behind them, all of them in martial array just standing there, and he and Tobiah making these mocking statements within the ears of the people. And in this loud voice, they begin asking things like, can you really do this work by yourself? Can you finish in a day? Can you sacrifice? And if a little fox jumped on the wall, it's just going to tear down anyway. The point in these questions is to imply they are in a hopeless situation. And the scene is set by the presence of the army. So the first question, they're asking the people here, do you have the expertise and the ability to actually finish what you've started? Because until it's finished, we can get in, you know. And they ask, can you finish this quickly enough to avoid this army from attacking you? You better be able to finish this today. Can you finish this in a day? Because we're right here now. And then they ask, can you sacrifice? And what he's suggesting is, You're going to have to stop this work sooner or later in order to conduct the normal sacrifices that are required in the temple and on your Sabbaths and so on. Uh, You know, what happens when you stop for those reasons? We're just going to walk right over this wall and come right in. Finally, even if you do finish it, we can tear it down. It's not going to be that strong. You don't know what you're doing well enough to ensure we can't fight our way back through it. You see, the whole point is to drive doubt and fear into their heart that they can actually accomplish the goal they're setting out to accomplish, which is to keep that army and every other army like it, out of the city. None of these people we know were likely to be expert wall builders. I mean, there may have been a handful, but I'm sure the vast majority of the people building here had no concept of what they were doing, right? They don't know how to build. They aren't necessarily going to have 
um, the strength to complete this at the pace they might think is necessary in light of the threats from this army. And so when they hear these things, you have to believe that for many of them, it did induce a considerable amount of doubt and fear. But Nehemiah has already said their success is not dependent on their own abilities. It's dependent on the Lord. Moreover, the point in God's economy wasn't to build the world's strongest wall anyway. His point was to build the most godly people. They need not worry about the army. God was on their side. When the Lord is giving us a call and we respond, the enemy is going to work to discourage us. And in that moment, the response of a godly leader becomes all important. He doesn't need to puff up his chest. He does not need to fill the room with hot air trying to find words that contend with the words of the enemy. He just has to leave the fight to God. And that's what Nehemiah does in this case. In verses 4 through 5, he prays to the Lord to avenge the people and leave the enemy's tactics to God. Look in verse 4. He says, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let... Not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. We said at an earlier point that Nehemiah has a reputation well-deserved for being a man of prayer. You see it here again. His response is to pray for the Lord to bring justice in the face of the enemy's work. He calls specifically for vengeance. That is the proper response. Vengeance. We can only fight so far in our own power. But when the enemy begins to discourage us, our prayer should be, for the Lord to deal with those enemies. Paul teaches in Romans 12:19, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord is more than capable of handling these situations. We need not worry. If our work is truly the work of the Lord, then nothing is going to prevail against the work that he has ordained. Once again, that doesn't guarantee that the road will be smooth and the bumps will all be cleared. What it says is the success is not in doubt. Nehemiah's prayer is often critiqued as being too strongly worded, which I think is a mistake because it's reading our modern sensibilities into the situation. And it's our modern sensibilities that have lost track with what God expects. At first, you might think this is excessive and harsh, but really it's nothing more than asking that their own words would come to rest upon their heads. Nehemiah asks that all that they have said would come about for Israel would simply be brought about on them. Let their walls be felled. Let their city be taken. Let them be plundered and taken into captivity. For that's what they're wishing upon us. And then he asked the Lord, don't let their sin be forgiven for what they have done here in demoralizing the builders. We have to hear that statement as an inspired statement of the spirit. Spoken through Nehemiah and reflecting the Lord's will for these men. God himself speaking through Nehemiah, pronouncing that these men do not have his forgiveness in his providence. They are not going to be counted among the saints. When all is said and done and that sin in this situation will be brought back upon their head for those of us who pray for our enemies, as Jesus commanded us to do, we wouldn't be praying this prayer for the heart of that commandment is that we would pray that they would be converted. But when we are confronted by the enemy and that enemy is having us a measure of success in the work of God, now the prayer needs to be to the purpose of the call. God, I don't want my this work to fail because I do not take upon myself the opportunity to pray for you to intervene and stop the the disruption of your own work. It's in God's heart to do that. So praying for what his heart would will is certainly not a wrong thing to do. God will deal with him the way he wishes, but we put it in his hands. And as a result of the prayer, the wall continues to be built. Verse 6, he says, So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. 
So what we see now is a wall that's joined, he says. So there's no gaps anymore. But it's not all the way to the top. It's half built in that respect. And now what the enemies of Israel cannot deny is that they are well on their way to building a wall and they seem to have the ability to get it done. And that causes them to be far more concerned than they've been even up to this point. Verses 7 and 8. Now when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. So after days and weeks of trying to discourage them, the enemies of Israel decide, all right, at this point, words are not enough. So they take up arms against the city. Sambalat and Tobiah, we know they're back, the pair that we've seen from the beginning. Now they've got others with them. They've got the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites. Ashdodites live in Ashdod, which is a former city of the Philistines. If you look on a map for where these locations are, these four groups represent the four sides of Israel. North, south, east, and west. Everybody on all sides are attacking Israel all at once. So Nehemiah doesn't record here all of what takes place, but we know from other places that an attack did happen and that it claimed many casualties in Israel. Josephus reports that many Jews were killed in the attack that followed here. But the attack wasn't strong enough to capture the city and they were repelled. Does it surprise you that the Lord allowed this attack to come and that it would claim Jewish lives? That he allowed it to happen at all? Would you have expected perhaps that the Lord would have defended the city from the enemies entirely, given that they're working according to what he's called them to do? He certainly could have done that, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it for at least two reasons. First, the people are being given a firsthand lesson in why the walls needed to be rebuilt and why they should have been rebuilt decades earlier. Obedience to God's word is an imperative. They were sent down. The first generation of of remnant was sent down well over 100 years earlier to do this very work. And yet they didn't. God is a righteous judge. And if you run afoul of God's instructions, you can expect consequences. God allowed the enemy to succeed to a limited degree, to a measured degree, in order to teach Israel a lesson on the importance of getting this wall built and finishing the work. Secondly, the Lord has declared already through Daniel the prophet centuries earlier that Israel's past sins under the old covenant would result in a long period of Gentile oppression over Jerusalem. We call it the age of the Gentiles. It began in 605 B.C. and it will not end until the second coming of Christ. Jesus himself says in Luke 21, 23, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all the nations, and Israel will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That time, those times, the Gentiles, is that period, according to Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, that spans between the first attack of Nebuchadnezzar all the way to the second coming of Christ at the conclusion of the tribulation period. For that long period of human history, a period of history we can't even number because we don't know when Jesus is returning, that period is a period in which we're told Israel will always be susceptible to the trampling of Gentiles. Their city, particularly Jerusalem, will be a victim to Gentile oppression, Gentile attack, Gentile control in various ways over that entire span of time. Only Christ's return will permit Jerusalem to be freed from this oppression and enter into a period of eternal peace. So 
This is one of an ongoing series of attacks that God will permit under different circumstances and in different times to complete this overall period of discipline that he has foretold for the nation of Israel. Seen in its larger scope, we understand this to be simply a moment, but it's not a consequence of them having done something wrong in the moment. It's a consequence of an older declaration by God that will play out over a much longer period of time. Moving on, once again, Nehemiah's response to this attack is prayer. And we'll finish with this, verses 9 and 10. He says, but we prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. Yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Notice this time it's not just Nehemiah praying for the Lord to intervene. It says here, we prayed. Now the whole of the people is praying together. This is a good example of the sanctifying effect of serving together. As the people join together in the work of the Lord's task, they begin to see the persecution that comes upon them, as God's people will always see persecution when they work together. And they face that persecution together. They suffer under that persecution together. They are brought into a greater dependence on the Lord as a result of that persecution. They sense that dependence and they pray together. The irony is that even as their bodies may be falling to the pressure of this persecution, their spirits are being lifted up and strengthened as a result, which which matters more in God's economy. Sanctification is a process of coming to the end of ourselves so that God may show us something better in us. These people are learning to follow the Lord in the face of adversity. They are learning to pray when faced with trials. They're learning to trust the Lord with their needs, and they are learning that these things are happening because a leader has inspired them to join in the work of the Lord. Prayer is important. It makes everything else possible. But there's also a time to act in keeping with God's instructions. And Nehemiah tells the people that he is going to set up a guard to protect the workers. And he's going to do so in order to allow them to finish the work. That isn't an act of faithlessness on his part. It's a recognition that God has given them the means to solve this problem. Even still, the guards aren't going to be enough to stop a whole army. In the end, it is God that will grant the success. The point is that a godly leader is a man who demonstrates dependence on prayer combined with a willingness to act when God makes a way available. Nehemiah organized the guard units, but of course the damage has already been done. So as we end, we're told that the work is in jeopardy and the outcome is in question. We're left with the concern of whether they will ever return to the work, whether they have the strength to pick it back up. So it falls to the leader again to respond in such a way for the sake of the people, that they get back to work. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for giving us things to consider out of your word tonight. Thank you for the the reminder that we serve so that we may become like you. In our failure to serve, Father, we, we set aside an opportunity to become sanctified. Not because service builds us up per se, Father, but because service puts us in the line of attack. Service puts us on the front lines of the battle. Service puts us in the position, Father, where we are forced to contend with our own weaknesses. We're forced to confront the failings of limited faith and limited trust. We have the opportunity to see others failing as well and build them up, even as they build us up. It's in the fight, Father, in the battle that you give us in every day of our lives that we get the opportunity to be grown into the likeness of Christ, who himself subjected himself to the battles that we could not fight for ourselves. We ask you, Lord, that you would give us a heart to serve, not in pride and ego, but in humility. And to do so, Father, for the reasons that you've told us matter to you. 
that our service would be to the edifying of the body, to the maturity of our faith, to the fullness of Christ living in us. We ask, Lord, that you give us a heart to do those things. And we know, Lord, that you use leaders around us to inspire us, encourage us, and drive us to do that. Let us have those leaders in our lives, Father. Where they are, let us appeal to them. And where they aren't, let us find them. And I ask, Father, that you would use them to your glory in our lives. Bring us back here in the next couple of weeks, Father, as we learn new things under a different teacher and then one day to come back under this study, Father. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.